Kumble Jane, you work with global high-tech companies evolving through disruptive change. Is there one whose story seems especially relevant? Jeff, in the high-tech world, the disruptors of yesterday are getting disrupted today. You know, if you look at the semicon high chain, Intel pretty much dominated that space. They're the ones who disrupted the ones before that, and they completely missed the mobile revolution. They got disrupted by the Qualcomm's and the NVIDIA's of the world that just screamed at market. Now, very recently, NVIDIA's and Qualcomm's are getting disrupted themselves because the hyperscalers like the Google and the AWS are coming up with their own chips to fuel the next revolution, which is around cloud. So, so there's a constant disruption that high-tech sees. If you look at the other segment, which is the enterprise software segment, that itself is undergoing disruption, right? You heard about the on-prem softwares, mm -hmm. the biggies like the Oracle, the SAPs, and Microsoft. They are getting disrupted because of the shift to cloud and software as a service. So you see Adobe, the Salesforce, and the likes really making the software industry undergo a change. So, so that's really what makes the shift in the high-tech world. An evolution of high-tech is what we'll be exploring in today's conversation. Welcome to the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with thought leaders on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute, and today we're here with Komal Jain. Komal is vice president and high-tech industry lead at Infosys, a leading digital services and consulting firm. During his 20-plus years at Infosys, Komal has held a progressively growing combination of delivery, sales, and leadership roles, providing him a 360-degree view and perspective of the tech industry. Komal's formal training includes an MBA from the Institute of Management and a bachelor's degree in technology from the National Institute of Technology in Kurukshetra, India. Komal, thanks for joining us. Absolute pleasure to be here. How did you get started in tech? Growing up, I was always fascinated by technology. I grew up in a small town in northern part of India. And in my high school, we had these special rooms for keeping personal computers where no dust could go in. And when we had exposure to personal computers, I was really amazed by how it can make wonderful things happen. And I was hooked. This was in early 90s when Fortran and DOS were still the predominant languages. During the 90s, I also got exposure to a lot of cool stuff happening, what we call now as the internet revolution. We saw companies like Yahoo, AltaVista, Netscape really shaping a whole new industry. During the very early part of my career, I was the founding member of a startup. So I really have seen high tech evolving through its various phases. And that has always kept me fascinated about how it is driving changes and not for its own industry, but also for many other industries around. What is it about tech that excites you? Electronic engineering was a major for me. And when I look at the technology industry, it really shapes each and every other industry. Going back to your startup days, what's one memory you can pull from there that was most interesting or thrilling? So I think what is so exciting was the speed of change. These were the days during the internet revolution where you could see a lot of new things happening. One was obviously how Netscape and AOL really shaped the internet industry. But on the other hand, we could see totally new offshoots coming up. E-commerce was getting developed through Amazon. There was a total new field of auctions becoming all of a sudden available by the likes of eBay. And then you had Yahoo and AltaVista, which people don't remember anymore, which really shaping the search industry where information really became accessible. Now, when I look at my startup base, I could see that in a startup, you had to fail fast and fail cheap. We were continuing to invent and look at new models. What was your product back then? So the product was really focusing on monetizing the new emerging e-commerce market, right? Be able to look at what Amazon was doing, be able to look at what auctions on eBay was doing, and then also look at how you can provide information across to users in a very timely fashion. 
smartphones didn't exist. So the model was really about getting information on your handheld device in a very quick fashion and they'd be able to take action based on it. Fast forwarding to today briefly, what is the same in the problems we're trying to address and what's really changed? If I look at it in the high-tech world today, I feel it is fundamental to each and every industry, right? Let's look at the automotive. As industry is going through major shifts, you will see the emergence of electronic vehicles. You see the emergence of ride-sharing. You also see autonomous driving. Now, but if you go underneath it, what really is happening is it's the software and the hardware that powers this change. That's kind of fundamental to the shift that we are seeing in automotive industry. Similarly, if you take another example of financial industry, there is technology that is really powering the efficient working of the markets. You look at accurate forecasting, accurate predictions, which really keeps the market going and being more efficient. Also, in the financial sector, we see the use of technology to prevent cyber theft, to be able to look at credit scores all in real time to be able to better service its customer. Similarly, if you look at the retail segment, you know, we are looking at how your e-commerce giants and retailers are able to sense the demands before a consumer even knows about it. They're able to not just forecast it, but able to make meaningful recommendations, being able to service the client. And underlying all of this is the hardware and the software. So that makes the whole high-tech space very fascinating. You know, in my view, going forward, each industry will become a technology company. So that's why high tech is important to everything else. Let's go back to the heart of the matter, though, for these tech companies. Mm -hmm. What is the major problem they have to address? Within the high tech, each segment has its own challenges. Each segment is unique in itself, and they're trying to solve their own problem. If you look at the semicon players, the focus for them is to get the maximum computing power available with the lowest power consumption, right? That's the like of Intel, the NVIDIAs, the AMDs of the world. If you look at the computing majors like the HP, the Dell, Lenovo's, and all that, they want to make sure that they get the latest and the greatest gear at the lowest cost, at the fastest speed in front of their consumers. So for them, the focus is on supply chain visibility, supply chain execution and avoiding technology obsolescence. If you look at the software industry, which is also part of high tech, the focus is on ensuring they not only get the latest and the greatest software, but also focus on user adoption. Because when they go back for the renewals, everyone is going to look at whether this technology has really used. So each segment has its own challenges. Now, what does happen at times is that nobody looks at the bigger picture. And that leads to many of these companies missing out on some of the shifts that happen across the industry chain. And at the same time, this is one industry where legacy could be a disadvantage. You know, as Satya Nadella put it very beautifully when he took over as the CEO of Microsoft, that this industry respects innovation, not tradition. Yeah, and you've actually worked with Microsoft as a big client. Given that this is so well-known, what's a lesson that folks that might not have worked so deeply and closely in that environment as you can take from the success they've had in the rebirth? No, I think the focus is on accepting change and embracing change. I think that, you know, it's been said that change is the only constant, but very few companies embrace it. And I think high tech as industry, and there are multiple examples we can look at where they are the ones who are in the forefront of change. They accept failures, take it as part of the success journey and make a change. In fact, I'll give you another example, a client of mine called Avnet. They are nearly a hundred year old 
electronic distributor. Hard to be more than 100 years old in electronics, right? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So, so they've been around for 100 years and their focus was how can they leverage all these technologies and provide a better service to the end customer. So they wanted to provide a concierge-like service to its customers across the whole ecosystem spanning more than 6 million products. And we worked very closely with them to use the latest AI and machine learning technology and build a cognitive assistant. So this is not just able to look at the prior history of the customers, it is able to look at what their demand is, it's able to serve them with their order information, and more importantly, make timely recommendations to upselling process. So this has led to a big shift for the company. And think about a 100-year-old company being able to make that and make that switch quickly. And it's great for Infosys to be part of such uh, journeys. Full disclosure, everyone, Coleman and I have actually worked together for quite some time. Known him for more than 10 of your 20 plus years yes. at Infosys. And a lot of cussing and discussing over the years. Uh, you usually go in the same direction. It's funny you mentioned that as an example because they're not in the heart of Silicon Valley. They were in Phoenix. Yes. You know. And the other thing that's interesting is when you worked with them, and I was out there at times as well, they were going through some churning change in parallel. They bought companies. They sold companies. They changed executives. They right. had failed major programs across the street. You know, what lessons have you gotten from their senior executives they've gone on this journey? I think they have a great leadership. And I think it all starts from the top and their willingness to make the shift. When you look at their CEO and their CIO, whom we are very closely engaged with, I think they are able to really see the shifts that are happening. They're able to divest what is not working for them. And then they're able to go through the pains of a change. Think about it. Change is never easy. A lot of people talk about it. A lot of people don't embrace it, but very few do it. But I think in AppNet, I've seen a company and a culture which is willing to embrace the change, being able to engage with partner who can help them on the journey and being agile enough to shift the journey if that is what is needed. And I think they are one of the examples where over the last three, four years that we have worked with them, we've constantly seen them being innovative, being able to listen and really make the shift, even though they have a huge culture, which could be a hindrance. And I'm glad you brought them up as well. One last comment on them is they're not the so-called glamour company, the Apple, the Google, Facebook, and yet they're a multi-billion, 15, 20 plus billion dollar company who, who sits in that next layer of making tech work. And I think it's for the rest of us that are trying to be out there making it work. They're a good lesson. You know, as you think about tech companies, what's unique about them? Do they actually experiment more than others? Yes, they do. I think the high-tech industry I've seen across various industries is the one that's focused on what is next, right? In the Infosys language, you talk about navigating the next. And I've seen high-tech really focusing on the next level of evolution more than any other industry, right? If you look at retail, the automotive, the financial sector, right? Those companies have been really around for hundreds and hundreds of years. In my view, high-tech as industry is still in its infancy. As you look at a child, during the early years, they go through a lot of change. And I think high-tech is in that part of its maturity cycle. It has been able to attract the greatest talent, right? But also, I think it is able to take the changes in the right fashion. There are failures along the way. In fact, failures get rewarded because to a large extent, it is because of the culture that got created earlier on in the Silicon Valley or some of the other innovation hubs that has continued to fuel the changes and the growth of the sector. Also, I think the other thing we need to look at is driving the innovation is the amount of patents that the industry has filed, right? If you look at last five to seven years, the patents that have been filed by the high-tech industry is actually higher than all the other industries combined, including the bio medical and sciences. So that is a reflection of kind of innovation that place does and how it is really embracing change in the truest sense. 
Once again, you are listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. We are here today with Komal Jain, high-tech industry leader at Infosys. Komal, on a bit of a lighter note, high-tech companies put out some really cool products. Sure. Are they cool internally themselves? It's difficult to say. While they work on some really cool stuff, I think internally they face very similar challenges. I think the biggest one is attracting the best talent. Everyone wants to go after what you call as super programmers, the 10x programmers. So that's a constant challenge for any company and more so for high tech. Also, I think many of these companies have grown big very fast. Another thing unique about high tech is many companies go through mergers and acquisitions. So all of a sudden, you see internal technology systems which don't talk to each other. So I've, I meet across many CIOs almost every week, and they're all still struggling to clean up the mess and making basic information available to their business. So they have those challenges. They look cool from outside, but I think internally they have the same complexity. Going from an internal view to maybe a macro view, and maybe some would even say the elephant in the room. What about China? How has the dependence on China influenced the growth of the tech industry? I think China is a big player in the high tech world. If you really look at China, they've been known to be the manufacturing hub for good quality stuff at a much lower cost. That's what led to the emergence of Foxconn, the TSMCs, and many other manufacturing majors in China. And I think they've led that wave. But what is really interesting is how China has shaped up in the last few years. I think in the last seven to 10 years, you would see China emerging as a AI superpower. You know, we look at the, some of the innovation coming out of China, the likes of WeChat, Baidu, AI, Alipay, and very recently, TikTok you see really interesting, cool stuff coming from that region. In fact, just two years back, if somebody were to say that a company from China would emerge, which will be on every phone, nobody would believe it. Now, but take the example of TikTok. I think it is one of the leading products on every app store and on everyone's phones, competing with the likes of Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. So that's very, very interesting. So my personal view is that China will move and grow from its manufacturing position as a manufacturing hub to be an innovation hub. And if uh, some of you are really interested in this topic, I would recommend you look at a book, very interesting book called AI Superpower by author Kai Fu Li. I think it's a very interesting read. Staying on the topic of China for a moment, what should executives outside of China know about China, especially if they're concerned about high tech? I think China presents itself as an opportunity as well as a big threat. I'd say opportunity because it's a huge population. It's willingness to catch up to the Western countries in terms of technology adoption. And most importantly, government support to embrace technology with the likes of smart cities, AI, and its focus on innovation. So it, it really is something you can't ignore. But I call it as a threat also because you're going to see competition from local Chinese companies. They have access to cheap VC money, which was not earlier available. They have access to talent, English-speaking talent, which is all of a sudden available, and who are willing to work double hard than their Western counterparts. And then, more importantly, there is a government regulation which supports local companies rather than global majors. So that's why it's a big threat. Looking at companies who want to take care of this opportunity, I think the only way they can focus on growth and expanding that region is through continuous innovation. Because the moment you're entering China, you're seeing hundreds of copycats coming up or willing to work double hard. But I think the biggest advantage that you would have is to be able to innovate, to be able to attract talent and continues to try new things, localize it, and then expand in that space. Let's look at the product itself. Everyone is enamored with software, but there are still factories that make stuff, that make physical goods. What's the factory the future look like for high tech? 
the factory of the future actually would be a learning factory. You know, we've already seen the emergence of intelligent factories. We have seen robotics being embraced in a big way. We are seeing data now being used in a big way to get real-time analytics and real-time information and put in the feedback loop, which helps make these products faster and cheaper and readily available and be able to adapt to changing cycles. Also, through Industry 4.0 and leveraging IoT and cloud, we are seeing a big shift that are really making the factory of the future. I feel the factories of the future will be more learning factories where humans will work closely with machines and be able to create that virtuous cycle where you're able to make products which are far more customized, which are far more unique in many ways at a much faster rate. Now, it has two significant implications. Number one, I personally feel that the factories will move closer to their end customers. So we're already seeing that Tesla making its factories in Silicon Valley, or they're going to Europe. Because labor is not a big consideration, proximity becomes important. The other thing which we will see is factories be able to mass customize at a large scale, right? I can order my car to my specs and be available in two to three weeks. That's something we could not foresee even just two, three years back. So mass customization, even for large factory locations, is going to be very possible. Working in the tech industry myself, what always amazed me, it's applicable, I think, to most businesses, but especially this, the market rate of change yes. is X, whatever it is. It's a year, let's say. And yet the rate of change of a company to catch up has always been, let's say, three years. It's, it's, it's at least twice that. It's like a mathematical equation with no solution. Yes. You can never implement right. a big change <laughs> before the thing you were trying to do is no longer relevant. How do executives deal with that in tech? It's not easy, right? It's not easy, you know, for every success that gets talked about, like the Uber, the Airbnbs, the Shopify, the Teslas of the world, right? There are a lot of failures along the way, which nobody knows. But I think what makes tech industry unique is they're able to embrace those failures. And I think large global enterprises also need to do the same. You know, I see companies that are really successful in making this shift as the one which have an incubator mentality within the large enterprise. They have something called a future fund or navigate your next fund, which is directly in the sponsor directly of the CEO, right? They're able to really focus on what is going to take them to the next evolution of growth. Now, if you look at the successful companies that have really reinvented them over and over again, you know, examples like an Intel or an Apple or Adobe or very recently Microsoft, we're really looking at where their new set of growth came in to drive incremental revenue top line, whereas the traditional business kept the cash flow going on. So you really have to look at making that shift happen with that future fund or an incubator fund and have that sponsored, not an on-site project or a small project, but right under the CEO or somebody else who knows that. Tech firms have traditionally been business to business or B2B. What are the most important implications as they transition to B2C models or business to consumer? Not all companies need to move to B2C. They really don't need to because, as I mentioned earlier, high tech powers many other industries like the financial segment, the retail, the automotive, and so on. Now, the companies will continue to sell in a B2B model, but they really help their clients and their end industries create disruption on their own world. So that will continue. On the companies that are in the consumer electronics segment, I think the battle is already on. In the world where end consumer has got used to instant gratification, a great customer experience thanks to the Apple, Netflix, and Googles of the world, the companies that will continue to emerge are the ones that will really make their end user life experience much smoother and provide them at the touch of a button. 
I'm particularly interested in looking at companies who can focus on few key elements, right? You know, I'm very curious to see how companies make the shift in the health area, right? To be able to focus on human longevity and in, in a good way, uh, to focus on autonomous driving. I think that's a big area. Companies are spending a lot of time and money on it, but there is still some ways to go. I think we're going to see more and more B2C work happening in that space. We hear the phrase digitally native a lot, but what does that really mean? How are tech firms embracing it? I think this is a very interesting term that was coined by Mark Prinsky in 2001, referring to people who grew in the area of ubiquitous technology, which includes the computers, the internet, and the mobile. The digital natives are the ones which feel technology is integral part of who they are. You know, they can't separate technology from their own lives. In the business world, it is really tied to companies in the mobile and social space. These companies really don't hold a lot of physical assets or factories or operations, but they are, have access to a lot of data, right? The companies like Uber, the WeChat I talked about, the Googles and so on, Facebook and so on. So they every day have access to petabytes of data. That itself is a gold mine. So they are the ones who are going to call the shots going forward and really shape many of the industries. What is a common misconception about the high-tech industry that most people don't know? The many that are around, yeah. I think everyone feels that high-tech, you get to work on cool projects. I think that's not the case. You know, as I mentioned, companies have grown fast. Companies get acquired, companies merge, and there are a lot of legacy stuff or desperate system that creep in. So there are things that don't talk to each other, and, and there is a lot of mess that needs to get cleaned up. That's not always cool. The other thing that everyone thinks is that high-tech industry attracts the best talent. Actually, that is not the case. In fact, high-tech industry is a poaching ground for traditional companies to attract best talent. High-tech industry, on the other hand, attract good talent from colleges. They crave them a platform to work hard, sweat, and really become the superstars of tomorrow. Like a farm team. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, I think the third thing is that high-tech companies are really cool because they provide access to free food, free beer, and whatnot. I think that's a misconception because those are the people who are working day in and day out. They have absolutely no work-life balance. So a lot of people who things that look cool from outside may not be the ones which a lot of people... Come for the ping pong, the free food, stay the night. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and work the whole night. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So, so these are the things that make high-tech look very cool from the outside, but in the inside, it's not as exciting as it looks out to be. Close to wrapping up, what three things can you leave executives with that they can follow to succeed in their own disruptions? What comes to my mind is be really honest about the difficulties of change. People know it, people talk about it, but very few do it. I think the biggest thing is be able to champion failures, be able to embrace what changes and be able to full heartedly support that. I think that's one big thing which I will recommend highly to anyone listening to this podcast. Second, I personally feel is always look for the right talent. And third thing which I constantly see, especially in the high tech world, is be constantly learning. Being able to really sense what is changing, being able to look at things outside your normal horizon, you know, what is your core day-to-day -day focus, and look at how industry shifts are happening. Because shift is going to happen. That is given. How quick, how soon, sometimes difficult to adapt and know. And the only safeguarding is that is to be able to constantly learn, look for new ideas, not just in your industry, but outside your industry, and take it fully head on. Who's been a major influence for you? Jeff, I'd go to my father. Growing up, I could see a strong sense of work ethic, being able to put in the hours on things that you're passionate about and give it all that you have. 
also being able to focus on the values, the time-tested values of honesty and integrity. I think while it may sound boring, but I personally feel that those are the things that are important for creating a lifelong success and a happy life. And my father really had a big influence on me and the reason why I'm here. Boring never out of style. I appreciate <laughs> yes. that. What online resources can you recommend to listeners? Any books or any, any sites? You know, I just finished a very interesting book on Elon Musk by author called Ashley Vance. It's a very fantastic read because this was written before Elon Musk got to be known for all the success at Tesla and uh, SpaceX and others. It really talks about all the challenges had to go through, almost the near bankruptcy situation that he got into. So I'd highly recommend anyone interesting to know what the high tech goes through to pick that up. Finally, how can people find you online? They can find me online on Infosys website, on my blogs, as well as on LinkedIn. And if they're interested, they can directly write to me at komaljan at infosys.com. You can find details on our show notes and transcripts at infosys.com forward slash IKI in our podcast section. Komal, thank you for your time and a highly interesting discussion. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett, Dode Bigley, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing. Thank you.